This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, GAT University, and that stands for Guardian Angel Training, with the subtitle, What Happens If Heaven Fails? And the author is Moon Pony. And Moon Pony joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello. Hi. Well, good to have you on the show. Now, I'm going to read a short sentence that you explain what your book is about. You say, here is the answer as to why things happen when we perceive as good and bad. So this has a a kind of a theme of, like often in life, we wonder, well, why did God let that happen, or why does God let bad things happen? Is that that kind of sum it up? Yes, very much so. That's what I was trying to make clear in the novel, is to make people realize that what we perceive as good as bad is always, there's always some reason to why it happens, and that reason is always good at heart. And there's always something beyond what we can reason why it happened. It's, be, it's a, of a bigger nature of, I mean, with, with God in charge, then there's always a bigger reason. That's correct. Well, why write the book? Well, in my, the work that I do, I do a lot of seminars, talks, and counseling, and that appears to be the biggest problem with people is that they have these um, regrets about their past and things that happened, and a lot of them become actually very bitter towards the whole, you know, godly aspect of the world. And I especially wrote this for teenagers, because teenagers seem to be the biggest victim of that, especially if they lose a parent or a friend, someone close to them. And the story is just to put that into perspective. It gives the reader to view how or why things happen, but in the viewpoint of a guardian angel, where they actually understand the bigger picture to why certain things are just meant to happen, whether we perceive it as good or bad. So you believe in guardian angels? I believe there's something much larger than us that's part of a greater scheme, and we're just sort of points on the board. Now this book is fiction, but with what you would say, I'm sure, uh, real life uh, implications. Yes, most definitely. Okay, so Amy, she is the heroine. Amy, she is the main character. Yes, Amy is very much like the normal teenager we get today. She's uh, somewhat... Um, arrogant, we could say. She believes she's on the pedestal and her parents are sort of old-fashioned. Well, her mother, at least. She lost her father a few years before the story begins. And she's the one that complains about why certain things happen. Why did her father pass away so unexpectedly? And it actually begins within the first two chapters where she's actually killed in a very unexpected car accident. And she begins to view the bigger picture of what life is actually about when she reaches this higher state, which you can put a lot of names to it, but the most normal term would be heaven. So she is killed in a car accident, goes to heaven, and now she's involved in a new kind of training in life? That's right. She, she discovers, when she gets to heaven, she discovers the bigger picture. As the book evolves, you realize how big the whole network is. What is mortality? What is immortality? What is heaven? And she wants to be able to help in that scheme because now she realizes how complicated and yet at the same time simple it is. And she's the one that starts going to the GAT university, the university that teaches her to be a guardian angel because only a certain few can do the path through to attend to the world of mortality to guard, protect, and guide loved ones. 
Now, one of her instructors is a angel named Lucifer. And now, is that the same Lucifer that we read about in the Bible? Yes, as a matter of fact, that is a very twisted story. Uh, when Lucifer comes, they, she discovers that Lucifer had in the past broken uh, heavenly contract. Something He was a guardian angel among the best, and there was an incident that occurred, and he did not follow the heavenly plan. And because of that, he caused a lot of destruction and, as they call, ripples in the mortal world. Is the moment you change the fate of one person, it ripples out and changes the fate of thousands of others because we're all connected in some way or another. And that is why Lucifer actually had his license revoked as a guardian angel. But he's still very much uh, in charge of that specific aspect as not to break contracts because he's the example of the chaos that occurred when things like that happened. Now, is Lucifer someone that that Amy trusts? Yes, Lucifer is trusted in the sense that he, because see, in heaven they don't, they don't, they do not communicate with actual words and, um, as they do on earth. You know, in heaven it's more uh, emotional communication. So you can't, in fact, lie to anyone else. So <laughs> no one has secrets in that sense. And Lucifer is actually the instructor because he provokes that emotion of the mistake that he did. And students like Amy, she picks up on the things that he did and why he did them. And through that, she learns her lessons as to why it is important to stick to the heavenly contract and not interfere with the fate of others. It seems like when you talk about an angel, Amy must be connected, obviously, to family and friends on earth. So is she allowed to go back down to earth to uh, help people? Yes, yeah, she becomes she becomes a guardian angel about halfway through the book. She she gets her license and she goes back to protect her mother because she she knows that her mother had lost you know her father or her husband and now her daughter as well and she's very concerned about how she's handling it and of course that's what her first intent is to make sure that she's okay and. Once she goes back to Earth, she realizes that she can't change, even if she is unhappy. She can't, in fact, change it, because there is a far greater plan that's coming in for her mother that she can only make sure happens the way it's meant to. So people, uh, even with an angel watching over a person, a family member, that person still has their freedom of choice. That's correct. The freedom of choice is basically the... Uh, inner instinct we have, we always have a feeling when we work, when we live, we always say, right, I really want to do this in my life. And that, that shows us that we have the choice because we want to do it, but we have the choice to say, no, we don't. That which we want to do or feel driven to do or feel is just right, that is the heavenly contract that is just playing its role. The moment we feel something is not right, we tend to change it. Things that are unchangeable, like the death of a loved one, is sort of set in this contract that is signed. In the book, it is signed just before our birth, our incarnation. Let's step back to her training. I see a statement here that really fascinates me. You say that uh, Amy, who is called uh, Archangel Akasha, is that it? That's it. She becomes Archangel Akasha. And she joins Lucifer to help him on his quest to right his wrongs, and they embark on a mission into the logic pool of existence we call hell. <laughs> so they go to do they go to a place called hell, or just their what they're going through? Help us understand that part of your book. Um, not the logic pool of existence is see, in heaven. They have a very strict order that is guarded by a group of archangels called the, the Arch. What they do is they protect the faith, in a sense. Logic thought, that, as we have on Earth, is in fact not permitted in a heavenly world. The moment you start having logic thought, they put you in sort of a rehab center. Logic is basically the form of uh, judgment, anger, sadness, regret, desire, or all these things that are associated with time. Um, so in the in the novel, 
hell is in fact that form of thinking. The moment you step in to judge why things happen, whether something is bad, the moment you are angry or you become bitter about some cause action, you become in fact that individual state of hell. And the logic pool of existence is in fact staying in this form because there's a lot of regret based on Lucifer's previous action. Uh, Lucifer's breaking of a contract, which occurred about 2,000 years before the actual story begins, has called the ripple, and that ripple, that logic uh, circumstance that he created, is still bounding back and forth. And that is where they go. They return to that logic pool of existence to try and stop that wave, as they say, from breaking through. And she learns that in order to restore peace and love, you have to do it with love. That, that is the biggest problem. As this logic uh, thought pattern begins to enter uh, heaven, to enter this pure world, it becomes, it becomes very difficult because Amy begins to think logically as well, and she starts getting angry as to why is this happening? This shouldn't be happening to a godly order. And the more she thinks like that, the worse the situation becomes. So it's actually, it's like a tennis match, you know, and she discovers this after a while, and it becomes a challenge that she has to try and maintain that faith while all these things are happening around her. So in heaven, you're saying is freedom of choice as well, of how we're going to live, whether we're going to live in peace and love and harmony, or we're going to live in anger? Well, the anger is the place of logic thought, and that is basically the job of the arch, the archangels that put, you know, rehabilitation, they have a whole network to try and restore faith because love is the only pure emotion and that is the pure emotion that follows us home again as Amy discovers in the book and she strives to maintain that whatever the cost it just gets very complicated as people begin to think logically without realizing it and of course in heaven there is no time that makes it even more complicated because the moment logic begins to creep in, time begins to creep in because logic is sustained by a realm of time. So time begins to filter into heaven and then the chaos breaks out. You also say that your story allows us to giggle through the process of how things work in the universe. What do you mean by that? Uh, the basic concept of heaven I try to put um, into a very how shall I say, into a very normal form, something that we as human, mortal human beings can relate to. Um, the concept of, you know, you have to have a certain license to pass through the doors to return to Earth. You have to understand certain concepts. When Amy's, for example, at the university, they run field trips where they actually go to Earth. Archangel Michael takes a group of students to Earth and runs through a field trip explaining how things work. So everything sort of based on a, on a foundation that we can all relate to. And I think that's what can be very amusing at places because you see how it in a way very much corresponds with our world, how simple it actually is, and then at the same time how extraordinary the whole system is when it's fully functioning. So in your book, there actually is a heaven's gate. Angels, archangels can go back and forth from heaven to earth. Kind of like an airport, you put it. Exactly. You have the arrivals and you have the departures. And, uh, for example, St. Peter is um, head of security in the arrival section. You know, he makes sure that everyone coming in is not still linked to some logic thought pattern. So that is a, uh, uh, sounds like the question then of happiness is, is to get beyond this logical process of thinking and, and to see the bigger picture and to have love involved with it. That's correct, most definitely. What are some closing thoughts? What would you like to give as a closing thought about your book? I think it would mainly be the fact that everything, everything around us that happens happens for a reason. Whatever that reason may be, it's always good at heart. There's always something great that comes out of it. And I, I, I know this from experience. I've, had, I've been through a lot of hard times in my life. And every time, even if it takes years, we discover that something did come out of it that really benefited us, whether it's the way that we grew 
what we've learned, how we manage ourselves. And this book is just a viewpoint from the godly order to show how everything is into one, everything's linked like a web. And if one thing happens, it influences something else. And one way or another, it'll spring back to us in its opposite form. Well, thanks so much for being on iUniverse Radio. Uh, how do we get your book? The book can be um, bought through iUniverse. And there's also a website of moonponybooks.com. So either way through that, we can get you can get the book through those locations. And that was Moon... Also order through your local store. Moonponybook.com? Books. Books. Moonponybooks.com. Fantastic. Well, interesting lessons of life. And we appreciate you sharing that with us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was Moon Pony. She is the author of her book, The GAT University Guardian Angel Training with a subtitle, What Happens If Heaven Fails? You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Under the Williamsburg Bridge, the story of an American family. The author is Frank Berry and Mark C. Gribben. He helped him write this story, uh, his own story, Frank Berry. And Frank joins us now on this interview on iUniverse Radio, which is sponsored by Trafford Publishing. Frank Berry, how are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? It's a pleasure uh, to be on. Well, it's great to talk about your book, Under the Williamsburg Bridge. I want to read uh, just a couple statements that you've written. Uh, You say, you know, this book is a cross between Platoon and The Godfather. Now, (laughs) boy, that takes you all kinds of places, you know, visually and emotionally. So this story, you say, would appeal to veterans because you're one, but also appeal to those nostalgia buffs as well as those who follow organized crime. So... Give us a little background on yourself and why you wrote the book. Okay, uh, first of all, um, the the um, the reason I said it's a cross between Platoon and The Godfather is because uh, uh, basically because because of my father, and he uh, he was a Merrill's Marauder during World War II. Uh, he volunteered for all kinds of missions. He retired. Uh, a major in the U.S. Army, 
He also was in, really in every branch of the service. Um, he started out in uh, 36 as a Marine, and then, then in 1942, um, he wound up in the Army Air Corps, and then he suddenly uh, is a volunteer in the 5307th Composite Unit, which was known as um, Merrill's Marauders, that uh, 3,000 went in and marched through Burma, fought the 18th Infantry, Japanese Infantry, uh, which had run through China and taken over Burma, and taken over, uh, rather, Singapore, and were coming down to try to come through Burma into India, and they had to stop them. So it was a, it was a suicide mission, and you had to have combat experience to get in. Um, also, before that, and this is a well-documented, I'm not the well-documented, um, known uh, uh, thing that I, I'm going to describe. It was, there was something called Operation Underworld, um, where the uh, American government, uh, the U.S. Navy uh, in particular, I believe it was uh, Commander Heffenden was his name, um, sought out the help of the New York Underworld to help uh, stop any sabotage on the um, docks. My father, uh, we were not in the war at the time, but my father was working on the piers. And um, he was also helpful then, as was the main guy uh, who gave the orders was to help the, the government was uh, Lucky Luciano. So it's from a contact that you've had uh, through your life with organized crime uh, that you saw, you could see a whole new world that most people don't understand. That's correct. That's true. I, I see... Um, I, I was born uh, to um, sort of like to, uh, the, uh, to an old-timer, uh, not the present-day uh, type of mobster. Um, these guys were really uh, unique, and, and you could sense the power about them without them even speaking. It just eluded from them. Um, the kids today, they get caught, they'll turn around and they'll start, you know, speaking or, you know, want to, right away they'll run, uh, they'll turn rat, so to speak. Whereas those guys, when they, when they, um, uh, if they were ever cornered by law, they would, they would go to the chair. Lucky Buckholder, the head of Murder Incorporated, walked to the chair. Um, as did uh, some of his uh, underlings, Bugsy Goldstein, um, Pep Strauss. Those guys all, um, they used to hang out in Brownsville at a place called Midnight Rosies. And um, they, uh, they all went to the electric chair. So, so it was through your, your father and the life that he lived, I guess, down in, down in the streets of the Lower East Side of New York, you just got to know all these people. That's correct. Um, that's where we come from. We come from uh, uh, Willett and Rivington Street, which is uh, no longer there. It was knocked down, uh, you know, to make way for, um, uh, for, for larger buildings. And uh, there are still the whole Lower East Side, the whole... Um, uh, look, the whole scenery has changed. I think if you brought anybody back, I think if you brought Maya Lansky back, uh, he wouldn't even recognize uh, his old hangout where he stayed on Delancey Street. Um, I don't think he would even uh, recognize it anymore. Um, there are a few streets that still have the old tenements, uh, and they also have a museum on Orchard Street uh, called the um, uh, Lower East Side Tenement Museum. And uh, it shows the way the immigrants live, live in that. And I did talk about that in the book, because uh, my father, you know, was born on the kitchen floor of a tenement on, on the Lower East Side. And I'm sure he was one of many. And uh, they, you know, they, Aside from, aside from uh, fighting with their fists and 
each street had a gang. They used to also, for fun, you know, they're still kids, they wanted fun, they'd play under the bridge, they would play football. Um, they, and in those days, they had the push carts, and the horses would, you know, bring the push carts around, and these kids, uh, not to be dirty, but uh, my father used to tell me about the horseshoe fights that they would have with each other, one block with another. And um, it was uh, kind of funny. Uh, plus, also, um, uh, they thought it was humorous uh, to go to the Lowe's Lancy Theater, uh, which was, uh, you know, in those days, they had live theater. And uh, Gus Edwards, who was um, uh, a fellow who, um, in the theatrical business, who um, uh, trained uh, young talent. And he had Eddie Cantor, who also was from the Lower Side, Henry Street. And Eddie Cantor um, used to uh, play at the Lowe's Lancy a lot with uh, Gus Ed Edwards. And my father's friend thought it would be funny uh, to urinate from the balcony down to the um, uh, people down watching the show below. Uh, this is also in the book. Uh, but um, that's on the... Uh, so you're getting across here uh, with, with my dad. Uh, then we have my grandfather, who is a very well-known, um, for a better word, racketeer. Or businessman, uh, he was at the uh, very start of the um, inception of the modern-day structure of the of what people call the mob or whatever they want to call it. Yeah, when we hear that word, the mob, or we hear the syndicate or racketeer, you know, we we may have that Godfather kind of image, you know, just the uh, ruthless killers of, uh, but at the same time, you call them patriots. Yes, I do call them patriots. Many of them, many of them uh, served our country uh, and served it honorably. Um, I, I know of a friend from the Lower East Side. Uh, he was older than I, but he won the Silver Star. Um, recently, I, um, I'm an attorney, um, and I have been for since 1987, uh, but um, I represented a uh, very large, uh, it was a RICO case, and I didn't represent this gentleman, but he passed away, he had cancer, and he was a Marine, he did three tours in Vietnam, and they said that he was the boss of a family. And uh, when they came into his house, I understand when they raided, the FBI raided his house, and they open the drawer and they see like three parts, a silver star, a bronze star, and they said, hey, where did you go wrong? And he said, I never did. See, their point of view, a lot of people aren't looking. I mean, you take a look at, uh, you know, the... the um, not to be too controversial here, but you take a look at uh, how many people the mob, the so-called mob, may have killed. And remember, they 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 didn't take it lightly. They they killed themselves. Uh, they didn't go around um, mugging or murdering or, or things of that nature. Uh, they didn't do what the uh, what the present economy uh, put us in. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, or what credit cards do to you. Um, you're better off sometimes with a Shylock than you are with a credit card. Uh, Shylock will never report you to uh, the three agencies and ruin your chance of getting a job. Uh, also, uh, if you make a partial payment, they're not going to add on interest. Uh, the, like they, They'll just say, okay, make it for next week, and that's it. Uh, you just come over as long as you show up. That's it. The story about them going and breaking legs, it's all, a lot of it is just uh, Hollywood. Well, Mark Gribben, who, who, what? Mark Gribben, who talked to you about uh, uh, the book and or about your life, really, that eventually, you know, you, you uh, I guess, worked with him to write your book. He said this, he said, 
when he talked with you, he always thought you were a walking, talking encyclopedia of organized crime, and you knew who whacked whom, who was with whom, and who ran what. Well, he's correct. Uh, in in most cases, uh, because I, uh, well, number one, I am a criminal defense lawyer. Number two, uh, from where I grew up and who I was am related to, was related to, that passed on, that passed away. My uh, grandfather uh, was known as uh, uh, Little Orgy Paisano and um, Anthony Garfano. That was his name. And um, he, uh, so, I mean, I, w I would hear things. I would hear things and I would see things, you know, uh, on television that, uh, or read things in books that just weren't right. And the people who told me about it were the people who allegedly had, had done it, had done the deed. And so there's a whole chapter there about uh, when I talked, I met uh, Charlie the Bug Workman, who uh, what did 20 years for the killing of Dutch Schultz. And he told me the whole story that they have about it is wrong. He just told me the story. So I related the story. Well, uh, uh, Mark also says that you're just kind of like an onion. There are many more layers to Frank Barry. It's just he said every time he talked to you, there would be just beneath it, there'd be another great story. So I guess when you come out of a environment like you grew up in and it was just everyday life to you, but to those on the outside, it's there's a lot of, obviously, drama and intrigue. Yes. Um, something, I, you know, I do notice that, and I'm, I'm sometimes not aware of it, to be very honest, but I can, something that would be very normal for me to say, like I just mentioned about uh, Charlie the Bug, uh, who did 20 years for killing Dutch Olson, he told me how he, how the whole hit went down. You know, if I, to me, it's very natural to hear that because that's what I hear. To me, it's very normal to hear, um, hey, um, uh, Emma, you know, Maria, what was the number today? You know, uh, it's very, you know, and if you know what numbers are. In the right. Thing, you know? Right. Uh, the numbers racket. And, um, it, to me, it's very common, whereas to somebody else, it's like, oh, my God. Or, you know, and, uh, you know essentially, they're just uh, human beings in a certain business who grew up, had to grow up in a tough environment, and had to do what they, what they did to survive. I was, uh, I was there. Frank, tell us how to get your book. By the way, do you have a website? Um, I'm working on that. With, uh, I'm working on that now, and uh, I'm soon going to have a website. But right now, uh, I know I'm on Amazon.com. I'm on the Traffic uh, website. Uh, I know that I could be in Bar Barnes & Noble. Uh, it could be ordered, as long as they, you tell them it's returnable. And uh, so it, um, uh, it, you know, it's recently come out, and... Uh, uh, I know a lot of people have ordered it, ordered the book off of Amazon, and uh, so I, and I know uh, friends of mine in Florida have gotten it from uh, ordered it through uh, Barnes and Noble. Well, thank you, so, Frank, uh, very much for being with us on this edition of iUniverse Radio. We appreciate learning more about your book. Oh, that's my pleasure. I there's a lot. Uh, there's a, really uh, a lot to it. There, there, it's first-hand information, and it's something I lived through, and it's something I'm proud of. I'm proud of my grandfather, Augie Paisano. I'm proud of my granduncle, Jake Traeger. I'm pr proud of my father the most, uh, and he, you know, for his, his patriotism to the country. And again, as I said, what he did, he did what he had to do. He grew up tough from a kitchen floor on the Lower East Side tenement. Thank you, Frank. Okay, thank you. That was Frank Berry. He is the author of his book, Under the Williamsburg Bridge. 
The story of an American family, Mark C. Gribben, helped him write it. And this interview on iUniverse Radio is sponsored by Trafford Publishing. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back. To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Scraps, Fictional Fragments, and the author is David Luck. And David joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, David. Hi, how are you today, Steve? Well, this is a collection of short stories, of stories that come from... Your experience of living near a, a a lake right there in Denver, and then some other, I guess, some other uh, stories from your travels? That's correct, of course. Uh, Steve, part of why I named the book Scraps is because uh, it's just a variety of stories gleaned from uh, many places and many people. Although, the, as you mentioned, uh, the first five stories uh, are centered around a lake here in Denver called Sloan's Lake, and... Uh, I came to write those stories. Uh, I'd been living in the mountains, kind of an isolated area, and I was used to taking hikes by myself and and uh, just not inter uh, just not interacting with people particularly. And I moved to Denver itself, and a few blocks away from this lake, and suddenly here I was just uh, overwhelmed by people of all varieties and ethnic uh, mix and uh, all the vibrant colors uh, of the city. And uh, that just uh, brought my mind into overdrive. And uh, I started imagining what many of these people I met might be doing in their life. And uh, out of that came these stories, these lake stories, the first five. And you say readers will enjoy the story's characters as they wrestle, these characters wrestle with familiar themes of love, lust, and yearning. Well, I always laugh a little bit about... uh, about that when someone asked me, well, what, what do you really write about? Well, I think most all of us writers write about the themes of life, lust, love, and yearning. And uh, with outcomes that uh, these stories have outcomes that sometimes uh, are not always what uh, you think they should be. And I think that's the surprise in many of the stories. Um, <laughs> you use, uh, is it Garrison Keeler? Garrison Keeler quote. Yeah, the quote, uh, writers are vacuum cleaners who suck up other people's lives and weave them into stories like a sparrow builds a nest from scraps. That's true. and That's what what we all do. And I know that in my own experience, that's what I do, uh, sometimes not even realizing that I do it, Uh, you know, meeting people and seeing people. I just collect these little tidbits and uh, eventually those are woven into some story that I might... Uh, be writing. So, as you uh, very specifically say, Scraps is not a quilting book. (laughs) 
But, you know, these stories are like a tapestry of stimulating fiction. Now, what is the stimulating fiction? Uh, What kind of a theme do you have? Well, there's not a theme that goes, uh, you know, through the entire book in that sense, Steve, but the stories are are just a a lot of life stories. Uh, They involve people, real-life people, and what real-life people are are dealing with, and how they they challenge each each other indirectly sometimes, sometimes very directly, and, of course, the... uh, always the hidden theme of, uh, well, you know, is this going to be hurtful? Is this going to be loving? Uh, And, of course, sometimes the ending uh, will surprise even ourselves in our real life, and and the endings will surprise us in these stories, too. And you touch on our memories, and you touch on our vulnerabilities. Well, that's really, really right. Some of these stories uh, came out of the past, I, I'm a native of Wyoming, and so I gleaned a lot of scraps from there, too. And uh, some of these stories delve back into my childhood. And uh, and I've had readers that have read the book, Scraps, uh, tell me, boy, this I really relate to this. I can remember doing this when I, was a, when I was a child. Or I can really relate to walking around the lake, uh, as you do in your stories, because I used to do that, and I used to see people that were just exactly like you portrayed them in this book, and they really have enjoyed reading this book, Scraps. So you've really tried to make it realistic because you say my characters experience and struggle with these different desires, and like us, sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not. That's true, and that's, uh, Steve, I've tried to write, I try to write realistically. These people are just like uh, you and just like me and just like the people we meet every day in our own families and uh, our own struggles and our own beliefs. And uh, sometimes uh, we get misled, too, by outsiders. And uh, then these stories in our lives, or our lives as portrayed in these stories, um, sometimes have surprising endings. We may dream about things all, uh, all our life, and uh, sometimes we realize those dreams, and sometimes we don't. And then sometimes we realize those dreams in a way in which we would have no idea it was going to happen. And I like to surprise readers that way. And you talk about the challenge of writing believable characters. That is really a challenge. It really is a challenge to write believable characters because... You pick a character, or you don't really necessarily pick a character, but a character comes to mind, and and I really try to put myself in that character's place, and what would I do in this situation, or how would I react to uh, this other person? Uh, and I try to make it as realistic as I can, because uh, I'm sure you've read books too, Steve, that the characters just don't seem real. You know, they couldn't do that, or you know, they couldn't think like that, and... Uh, I try to avoid that. I try to make them just everyday, common, ordinary people, uh, just like you and me. And you call that realistic creativity. I call that realistic (laughs) creativity, right. And I think a lot of that, you have to be a real observer of life, and I I really think I am a a real observer of life, of people and and of life. It's, uh, It's kind of like standing on a street corner and watching the people walk by, but it goes deeper than that. Uh, people have coats on and clothes on and and they look a certain way but uh, how do they really look uh, you know in their own mind how do they really look and uh, how are they really presenting themselves in the world and kind of like looking at these people that way really analyzing them and how we think they might really be and And being able to write that is the challenge and how these characters might respond in a, in a different situation that you put them in. That's, that's always a surprise to me, too. And I, <laughs> I enjoy that part. You enjoy that part. You know, all of a sudden, your characters come to life, and they start talking, right? That's right. And you go, wow, I didn't know they knew that. That's right. <laughs> Where'd they get that idea from? Absolutely.
You make this statement. You said some of the short stories in Scraps are, re- are a reminder of simpler times, our history, something we all yearn for. Now, talk about that. Help us understand what you're saying there. A few of the stories in Scraps uh, come from simpler times. Uh, they, uh, they delve back uh, to a time when we didn't have all the electronic media that we have now. Um, there's two stories in particular. Come Spring is one, and the, the other one is called The Box Social. And these are, uh, these are events that occurred back in, oh, say, in the uh, 40s and 50s. Uh, and these were social interactions where people actually got together and did things uh, socially without the use of electronic devices. And I, I kind of think that's interesting. Well, I, I, I think it's very interesting because we are so attuned to doing everything through electronic media now. And, and in fact, you'll see some of the cartoons in, in the everyday paper where uh, people uh, start to chat over the back fence and they say, well, you know, you can see my comments on Facebook. And uh, these stories, like uh, I mentioned, go back to a time when people interacted face-to-face. And uh, the box social is a uh, where uh, sandwiches were made by uh, the women and, and the young, young women, and uh, then they were auctioned off, and they were always auctioned off for a good cause. Uh, but as a young uh, person, as you'll see in the story, you'll find out why he's, he started to perspire, because he got his father to do the bidding for him. And these were social interaction things that we just don't see anymore. And I think some people yearn for that. They yearn for simpler times, and they will enjoy these stories. Now, the characters that are involved with lake stories, are are these people that you knew, or these uh, situations, uh, experiences that real people went through, or is this... Just what you've created. These are all fiction, just what I created. Uh, they're created, uh, or they are based on people that I saw, uh, observed around the lake on my walks, and uh, I just made up these stories about them. They, I never met any of those people in, in the lake stories. They're just truly fictional stories that I uh, invented, but based on real people that I saw around the lake and behaviors that I saw around the lake. Without giving away the, uh, the, the climax of this short story, tell us about the character Angelica. Just you know, give us some little insight into Angelica and what she's going through, her mental process. Here's Angelica, a young woman, uh, Hispanic in, in uh, origin, of course, and she's uh, she was, as a young girl, she was attracted to a, a fellow at the lake, and, uh, and not even a romance particularly blossomed, although she, uh, as a young girl, felt giddy in love with this guy and, and ultimately became pregnant, and things didn't work out and, and because of age difference and many other things. And so here's a mother with a child, and she's trying to get back into school to get, gain education, so that she can become something and support herself, well, the father enters back into the picture. And uh, slowly but surely, she wants him to get to know his and her son. But here she's torn uh, because she has a goal now. Boy, she's got a goal. She's going to make something of herself. She doesn't want to be caught back in this trap uh, with this man. But uh, this is all been pictured because she's waiting for him. They've come to a point where she allows him to take their son that they share uh, for an evening, and he's not returned the son. And this is uh, the setting is in in the winter time, and she's sitting in her car, and it's cold, and and that increases her anxiety. And where can her the father's her son's father be? He's late bringing back the sun, and all this anxiety is carried through in the icy cold of this car. That is Angelica. Now, why do you take us to England? Well, England, uh, 
I just looked for variety. Uh, I took you to England because I witnessed uh, an episode similar to what happened in Balby in this story, and I thought it would be interesting. And uh, it could happen anywhere, but this one did happen in England. And then you have, I guess, a comment about death and taxes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the things that we all can count on, right? Well, uh, you know, there's always that saying, uh, uh, you know, about death and taxes. And uh, here's Loomis in uh, Death and Taxes. And and Loomis has uh, lived a a long life, but uh, uh, unbeknownst to him, Taxes are coming due, and, uh, well, you'll have to read the story to find out who wins, death or taxes. So (laughs) it's an interesting story. You have another title, Never Be Afraid Again. Never Be Afraid Again uh, is a story that I wrote pertaining to uh, concealed weapon carry and uh, how concealed weapon carry can make us feel very safe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Yes, it may be just uh, an illusion, huh? <laughs> but, well, you'll have to read the story. That's right. Either. That's right. When you, when, you, when you can feel that weapon against you, I guess, you know, it's a different feeling than when you don't have it on. <laughs> yes, I'm sure that's true. And who's Petey? Petey is a parrot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm glad I my, asked. I this, know, is, Petey. this is my fictional choice for, uh, for comedy, uh, humor. <laughs> okay. And um, Petey is a parrot that uh, comes in to see this veterinarian via his owner, and Petey looks dead as a doornail in the cage. But uh, anyway, this young veterinarian can, has uh, optimistic that he can save anyone's life. But uh, anyway, uh, you'll get some laughs out of that story. <laughs> right. Petey's a, a parrot full of surprises. Tell us about your website. My website uh, is easy to access. It's www.davidluck.net. So it's just my name and .net. And you can find out more information about me and uh, and also information about my uh, other books that are available also. And we can get your book through iUniverse as well as, I'm sure, all the online retailers. That is correct. Uh, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble's. Any bookstore can uh, can arrange to uh, get the book for you. Well, David, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you very much uh, for talking with me, Steve, and uh, enjoy Scraps. That was David Luck, the author of his book, Scraps, Fictional Fragments. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.